Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. Tonight on Your Legal Rights, with the participation and assistance from the Labor and Employment Law Section of the California Lawyers Association, we're talking about the evolving world of labor and employment law. Profound societal changes have a way of leaving imprints on our institutions in the way of our government works and, yes, in the workplace. For the last few years, we've seen adjustments in the way we've treated historical figures, the relations and expectations between races and ethnicities and genders, from harassment laws to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the pandemic, to a sluggish economy, and a recognition that corporate boards don't reflect the community with all of its members. As with each of the last few years, the 2022 legislative session in California brought the passage of many bills directly affecting employers and employees throughout California. Tonight, as we're starting in a new year, we once again are drawn to the labor and employment arena to see just what changes these events have left behind in the workplace. And as always, we're eager to hear what's on your mind and answer your questions. Our phone number right here is 415-841-4134. Again, that's 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the local dialing area, and again, that's outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, that is labor law, employment law. You're not limited to the exact point we may be in our conversation. Bear in mind that our guests cannot provide you precise legal advice without all the facts relating to a given case. However, we're happy to pass along the legal principles to assist you in your own decision-making. And their legal guidance mightn't be the same positions of their respective employers or clients, but they're happy to help, and they're here to help. Again, our phone number here, 866-798-8255. Joining us tonight, we have attorneys extraordinaire from both sides, a partner in the firm Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Rude, and Romo. Thomas Lenz handles all aspects of labor and employment law issues and heads the firm's traditional labor and national labor relations board practices. He works with employers in all major industries across California and the West. Also joining us tonight, Beth Mora of Mora Employment Law is dedicated to representing victimized employees. She's a passionate and accomplished advocate for those facing a wide range of employment law issues. Beth's commitment to social justice and volunteerism is deeply rooted in her personal values. Due to her advocacy, Beth is often invited to speak, has published numerous articles, as well as been quoted in legal journals including Bloomberg Law, Daily Journal, and Law 360 on issues impacting employees and the legal community. From the courthouse to the boardroom, Beth is a committed advocate for her clients and her community. And with that, Tom, Beth, welcome both of you to Your Legal Rights. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. You know, we've been talking before going on the air about some of these changes that have been taking place last year and the last few years. 
one of which I think the first one that we talked about was bereavement leave and how that law changed. Was there any law before this year? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I would politely correct you to say it's not a change. It is a new law that after many attempts to have this law put onto the books, this is the first time that anyone has been able to get it signed in California. So now for the first time in California, employees can take bereavement leave without fear of retaliation or termination. Prior to January 1st, 2023, you could be terminated for asking for or taking bereavement leave. So now if you're an employer with uh, five or more employees, you have to provide five days of bereavement leave. Um, It it does not have to be paid. The employer can provide pay, um, but the employee has to work for the employer for 30 days to be eligible, and the employer does have to keep the paperwork in relationship to your leave, and they cannot disclose your confidential information about that. What are some of the relationships that give rise to bereavement leave? If um, if I lost one of my pets, I don't think I would qualify, although people who know me probably know that I should. So th- that's a great question, and I know a lot of pet lovers like myself would think our dogs, cats, and our other lovely family pets qualify, but it doesn't under the statute. There is a definition under the statute of what a family member is, and it's very similar to the de- the statute definition under California Family Rights Act. It is very clear that your family member is truly what we define in California as a family member. It's pretty broad in California. Well, that kind of segues into our next uh, our next question. But, uh, Tom, you looked like you were ready to jump in. Yeah, there there is a long list of um, people for whom you can take this bereavement leave. And I think it's going to be important for companies uh, that – you know, employ people who seek to take this leave to make sure that their policy and their practice is consistent with uh, the the list as contemplated by this law. So if you're dealing with an outdated list, you, you may have a policy or a practice that runs afoul of the law. So we're talking about the employee's spouse, child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, domestic partner, or parent-in-law. And that's certainly a, a sizable list, but uh, it's one that uh, if you run a company and your employee is asking for this leave, you had better uh, provide it if you fall within the scope of um, the law and its coverage. So uh, I think this is one where fine-tuning your policy, making sure that you're up to speed is going to be important. Now, in, in answering the question, Beth, you brought up Family rights or family leave. And that brought me to our next area. Let's talk about family rights leave and paid sick leave. But what is family rights leave? Uh, that's a great question and actually very important for a lot of um, citizens in California. The California Family Rights Act is a leave, that prote- it's a concept of under the law that protects you if you take leave. If you need for yourself or a, fa- a family member needs leave for your disability or their serious Um, uh, sick themselves for their own condition. Um, What happened in January uh, January 1st of 2023 is the definition of who is covered by the California Family Rights Act expanded under our new laws to create a designated person. One of the wonderful things we learned in California is we really are expansive of our definitions of who's family. We welcome all sorts of people into our families. And one of the things we learned during COVID is who can take care of you expanded. 
And so we expanded that definition to have a designated family member outside of that traditional definition that Tom just wonderfully gave to us. Now we have under the code a designated person that may not be someone by birth or marriage, but someone who's truly your family. And the code now defines how to do that and how to designate that person. It's funny. It it brought me to to think back. I'm actually in the midst of picking a jury for a jury trial. And the sheer number of persons that came forward asking to defer their service because of caring for somebody was somewhat unprecedented. At least I've not seen this sheer volume of people coming forward as we did this time. And when you inquire a little further about who they are taking care of or needing to be there for, the list was quite expansive and very similar to what we're talking here. It In the past, it might have been a spouse. Now it's parents or in-laws in addition to children. Um, it just it seems there's a whole lot of folks. The relationships in society are complicated, and I think if you're trying to you know put relationships into a box, uh, it's it's hard. And uh, I think the designated person uh, development here in the law is is going to be important to respect uh, those sorts of uh, dynamics that you're talking about uh, w- with your jury selection. And, uh, you know, the reality of uh, how people live today, families are uh, spread all over the country. Uh, And uh, the people that you may be closest to may not be your blood relatives. I know that the employers that I work with, um, some of them are going to voice concern. You know, how am I going to keep track of this? How am I going to know that, you know, every 12 months somebody can change the designated person? But that's the reality of this California law. And like I tell a lot of people, California is often the forefront of what happens elsewhere later. So uh, we will see how this plays out, and I'm sure employers will find a good way to work with that to accommodate this changing reality for, for people that work for them. And to our friends in some of our neighboring states, it's probably common. Absolutely. You know, every once in a while, another state or jurisdiction beats us to a new development in the law. But I am very thankful that California is at the forefront of all these changes. And so a designated person is really wonderful for someone who needs to take leave for themselves or for needs someone to help them with their medical leave, as you found today in your jury selection. Moving on, it seems that up until this year... If I was reporting to an employer, my salary or my hourly was strictly between me and the employer. Seems like that's changed a bit. Yes and no. Okay, so the change you're speaking to is the most recent update, SB 1162, which is the most recent update to Labor Code 432.3. Um, that's the pay scale reporting. This is defined as a way of disclosing data in the pay scale or uh, a, a, what someone is making. Uh, this is actually just an update to existing um, data about um, someone's pay. You can't tell an employee under existing law that they can't disclose their salary or they can't discuss their salary. That was already on the books. But you also on the books couldn't tell um, – you couldn't ask someone what their existing salary was in their job application. 
what these salary what these laws were about was to address systemic bias in compensation for people of color and women. Um, are we constantly here? Uh, the you know women make X on the dollar of men, or people of color make X on the dollar of Caucasian men. So these laws were designed to address that. So with this most recent amendment, it is the disclosure of the pay scale for jobs. So if you're a current employee, you can say to the employer, "Can you please tell me how much this position pays?" or the scale, or if you're applying for a job, they now post the salary in the job posting. So it's it's really about transparency to, to try to help address systemic bias. I presume its application is limited to larger employers? It applies to employers of 15 or more. So if I worked in a place where I've only got two people in a given position, there's not any confidentiality left if they have to say how much they're paying the man in the position and the woman or the people of different ethnicities if there's only a couple of them. It it implies whether or not there's two people or four people in a position is not really the issue. It's the size of the employer. If the employer has 10 employees, this law doesn't apply to them. If they have 15 or more, it applies to them. So what kind of advice would you give to an employer that would keep them on track? Well, um, there's a few different things I'm thinking about with relation to this legislation and, and uh, certainly uh, a point that's been made. Um, employees certainly have the right to talk about their wages and uh, that preexisted this law. It's a matter of state law. It's a matter of federal law under the National Labor Relations Act. People have the right to discuss um, their, their wages, hours, and working conditions, and that is protected activity. You cannot retaliate or discriminate because people do that. Now, uh, with this law, uh, I think employers need to uh, recognize that it's going to impact them in a few different ways. Certainly, uh, if you meet that size uh, to be covered by uh, this law, you're going to have to uh, you know, respect not only people's ability and right to talk about earnings and to request information. You're going to have some reporting obligations, um, and uh, you're going to have uh, some obligations as it relates to uh, postings that you may put up about um, about jobs. If you're hiring uh, either directly or through a third party, you're going to need to uh, identify a range that uh, that position. Uh, would provide uh, in terms of you know wages or salary, whatever that may be. But uh, employers, I, I think, are um, a little skittish about disclosing this information, and you know perhaps they're afraid that they're going to get boxed in somehow, or um, uh, they're going to uh, end up having to pay something that uh, someone isn't entitled to. But that, that's why you want to state it, uh, you know, generally in a range rather than to identify a specific amount. And I think, you know, to the extent that this changes or adds to the the pre-existing legal rules, you know, contact your labor and employment attorney of choice and make sure that you, you know, bring yourself up to speed and you know, update your policies, update your forms, and get good language to use for you know, what you're going to be doing. What kind of specificity is required in the reporting? Do we have to disclose who's making the money? Oh, I, 
No. <laughs> I think you're talking about the pay scale reporting, but if you're talking about the annual pay data reporting, that is actually different. The pay data reporting is for employers with 100 or more employees. So I just want to be clear, the pay scale data disclosures is for employers with 15 or more employees, and you don't have to say there's 10 employees in this position in that pay scale data disclosures. You don't have to disclose whom, what, that type of thing. In the 100 or more annual pay data reporting, that is an amendment that came out of SB 1162, but is an amendment to Cal Government Code 12999. That is a disclosure and that has more detail. So that may be what you're speaking about. Um, I'm not sure that um, everyday people are actually going to be worried so much about that disclosure. It's really more about the big corporate people in the HR departments and gathering all the data um, and and reporting it to the government agency. Um, We don't actually all dig through that report and, and look for errors. It's really about helping employers when they gather that data helping them to see where there might be areas they need to fix systemic bias um, with gender and race um, when they gather that data. It's really helpful because the whole goal of this legislation is to correct problems, not punish employers. Ultimately, that may happen with these pro- with these legislation, but the whole goal is to correct and have equality and pay for same and similar work. And that's what we hope to do. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're discussing new laws, and particularly new labor and employment laws. My guests are Beth Mora of Mora Employment and Thomas Lenz, a partner at Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Rude, and Romo. And my guests are all here to help. If you have questions for my guests, our phone number is 415 415- Eight four one four one three four. Again, that's four one five eight four one four one three four. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll free at eight six six seven nine eight eight two five five. Again, it's eight six six seven nine eight eight two five five. And as always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, that is labor and employment law. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. So let's change direction a little bit. One of the big changes, obviously, the biggest legal change of the last year was probably regarding reproductive rights. And that flows right into our next topic of reproductive decision making. Have things changed a bit there? Yes, that was a it, that's a good good point. It's a big year for that. It was a disappointing year for a lot of people and I understand. One of the good pieces of legislation that came out of 2022 is SB 1044, um which amended the fair employment Oh, sorry, wrong number. Um I apologize. That was terrible. Um the reproductive decision making SB 523. I apologize that amended the Fair Employment and Housing Act to include reproductive decision-making as a protected classification. We often know protected classifications. We look at it as um, race, gender, disability, national origin, but we are now adding to that list um, reproductive decision-making. So you cannot be discriminated against in your employment, in your hiring, in in any decisions of employment for a reproductive decision-making choice something you do, um, something you don't do. 
Um, and so our wonderful legislators of California chose to make sure that that was a protected activity in your employment. So is this valid if you were to work for a national employer, one that may have a very different view of reproductive rights? Can they be bound by this? And I don't know if Tom wants to. I feel like I'm monopolizing. I'm happy to answer. Um, not at all. Go for it. <laughs> but I, I would say yes. If you're doing business in California, you're uh, going to be uh, covered by this law. California takes a pretty aggressive view of uh, where its laws apply. And uh, I, I think California would uh, have a significant interest in uh, making sure that uh, they enforce the law uh, in a way which is going to um, ensure that people working in California uh, or having employment that has some tie to California uh, receive this protection, and particularly given the the high visibility of uh, these issues on reproductive decision-making uh, in light of the Supreme Court ruling um, that uh, came out about a year ago. Mm. Has also many emotions with that ruling. Yeah, it's amazing how fast the world has changed. Yes. Yes. And I think that that's a good question you asked because I do think it's going to be um, that that we may get that tested. I have not seen that um, statute litigated yet, that, that amendment to the Fair Employment Housing litigated yet. Um, but I do think we'll see it tested, unfortunately, with a, a fact pattern of even a national employer or someone based out of the state who doesn't understand or someone with really strongly held beliefs who's just challenging someone. We just uh, – luckily, we haven't seen it tested yet that I'm aware of. I think employers are going to need to, as they should every year, take a very close look at where the law has changed and make an effort – to adapt policies and practices to these changes to the extent that you have a handbook or, uh, or, or simply a policy that discusses the protected categories and avoiding discrimination. You're going to need to update it. You're going to need to include uh, reproductive health decision-making uh, because it is part of the Fair Employment and Housing Act now. And you don't want to just cherry pick what you think are the best protected categories uh, to list. So uh, this certainly will be an area where uh, employers who are not on board uh, will face challenges. And I could see a couple different sources for challenging this law. One would, of course, be somebody with very different values, beliefs. And there are parts of the state where you would think you were not in the state when it comes to those issues. But I could also see a national employer with a different belief system, perhaps saying that it's a burden on interstate commerce Mm. and trying to challenge it. So one of the things, the last thing in this category that we were going to discuss is emergency conditions and and, uh, retaliation. Yes. Oh, that's the segue. Thank you. I missed the pickup. I apologize. So one of the uh, one of the nice pieces of legislation that came out of 2022, effective in January 2023, um, is SB 1044. 
um, which makes it a retali- it makes it um, improper for an employer to take um, action, adverse action, or threaten adverse action against an employee um, who refuses to report to work or who leaves work because the employee reasonably believes that work site was unsafe due to an emergency condition. Well, what's an emergency condition? Everyone has a different definition, but the statute was defi- defined it for you. That means conditions that are disaster or extreme peril to the safety of that person or property at the workplace or work site caused by national forces or criminal action or criminal act or to an order to evacuate at the workplace or home for the school or for the worker's child due to national disaster or criminal act. We can all tell you where this came from, but this is actually not COVID. This is because we had so many floods and we had so many fires. And sometimes workplaces do have criminal acts that occur, you know, with um, gun violence and so forth. So we unfortunately were hearing stories of people who were told, yes, we all may be running away from the fire, but we need you to run to the fire. And that employee was refusing to show up, rightfully so. And then we're getting retaliated against, disciplined and or fired. So this law is clarifying, no, you can run away from the fire, too. We all know great examples of this after the Loma Prieta quake. People were running out. I was talking to a bank manager who wanted his employees to stay and balance before they left. (laughs) They were in an area that wasn't particularly hard hit. And to his surprise, a block away, a building collapsed. Let me turn it to Sarah from San Francisco. Welcome to your legal rights. Oh, hi. My question is about paid family leave. And taking care of a family member who has a illness, um, is there? Can can you lose your job for taking family leave? That's my first question. My second question is, can you take the family leave like in a part time way, or do you have to take it the full forty hours for the full eight weeks? That's my question. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for joining us. And I think that's a very good question. Actually, two questions. Um, I would uh, begin by saying that the leave area is super complicated and there are a number of different types of leave and they seem to multiply from year to year. So uh, the details are going to matter. Um, Typically, if you are uh, taking leave, Uh, consistent with leave rights under the law, you cannot be disciplined or terminated for that. Uh, And you need to, you know, check your bank um, at at your workplace on how much leave you are entitled to. Uh, That being said, if you exhaust your leave, your employer may no longer have an obligation to provide it, in which case uh, the employer may have policies that expand upon what the law requires, uh, but uh, that's going to depend upon where you are. So um, I I think that it's going to really depend on your circumstances and um, and where you work. Yeah, and to add on to what Tom says, and that's a really great question. Thank you for calling and asking. One of the things I want to point out is um, a legal aid that I volunteer at is called Legal Aid at Work. They have wonderful fact sheets and free information for people 
Not that I'm trying to take away from this also wonderful show, but since FAMLA, Fair Family Medical Leave and California Family Rights Act is so terribly complex, I strongly suggest that because your situation will be fact-specific to this complex law, that you check out the Legal Aid at Works fact sheets that help you walk through that fact scenario that's complex at the Legal Aid at Works um, uh, website, and it gets go to the section that says Get Legal Help or our programs for work and family, which will have a fact sheet that very specifically walks through this situation and the new designated family persons um, and also some free legal aid clinics uh, where you can get assistance if the fact sheet doesn't help you walk through and also sample letters to write to your employer if you need help with that. And the second half of her question, is it all or nothing or could she use this act to ask for reduction in her work rather than time off. I, I think it is uh, you know, a, a matter of being flexible. I don't think it's going to be uh, a question of using it all at one time. Uh, and the, the situations that people encounter can vary so significantly uh, and the time commitments involved you know, it might involve taking somebody to a doctor's appointment one day and taking a day off another day. So I, I think that that's going to be a matter where the employee and the employer should work together. So it may not be one lump sum taken at one time, but uh, something that is uh, hopefully uh, determined uh, together in what we refer to as uh, the interactive process. Right. And the term you're looking for is intermittent leave for using less than your full lump at once. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. And we will be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, The Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. One of the areas that drew attention a couple of years ago was SB5 and the idea that none of us, I'm sorry, I misspoke, AB5, And the idea that none of us were independent contractors anymore. We're all employees, with a few exceptions. What's the current status of that? Are there challenges afoot? Is it evolving? It's um, still the law. AB5 is still the law. There uh, was legislation that followed AB5 to allow uh, some exceptions to be uh, put into the law and it, it's funny as you read it because you can see who was lobbying, who uh, showed up in Sacramento to talk to their their legislature, uh, their legislators, and uh, explain why they needed a different standard than the ABC test put forth by AB five. So, uh, if you are engaged in uh, business with another business, if you have um, a uh, documented contractual relationship. You may have an exception. If you are working on a referral system, you may have an exception. And there's a variety of situations where uh, someone may continue to have an independent contractor status, but you need to make sure you're following the formalities. I would add that 
uh, different government agencies uh, at um, uh, particularly at the federal level, are looking to tighten up the rules as well. The federal government is uh, you know, looking at the ABC test as uh, perhaps the direction for labor law reform uh, that would be national. Uh, so um, states other than California have uh, picked up on the ABC test, and uh, it's, it's still there, and it's still the presumption that uh, someone performing services is doing so as an employee rather than as an independent contractor. But there's still a lot of outcry from uh, certain segments of the economy about that. Yeah. I mean, as a plaintiff employment attorney, I, of course, like AB5. I like what has survived of it, and that's still a good chunk. But I do encourage employees that are faced with the employer asking them to be a contractor to go to the government website. There is a state of California government website. Really, you would just search AB5 or am I an employee versus a contractor? And they have an interactive website that lets you walk through what you do for a living um, what you're being asked to do, and are you being properly classified as an independent contractor or an employee, um, and how to deal with that if it is improper. And it is really because AB5 was such an important shift in our law, but also there have been carve-outs since the law was put into place. And I like to remind people that, um, especially employers who are concerned about addressing their risk, that there are a number of different issues that can flow from this wage an hour, not properly paying people, payroll tax, uh, workers' compensation, benefits. Uh, there's labor law ramifications, depending upon whether you consider someone to have the rights of an employee. So it is a multifaceted problem if you've done it wrong. Good point. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden, and with the help and participation of the Labor and Employment Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. Tonight, we've been discussing new laws and what's changed in labor and employment law. My guests tonight are Tom Lenz, a partner in Atkinson, Andelson, Loya, Rude, and Romo in Pasadena, and Beth Mora of Mora Employment Law. And they're both here to help and to answer your questions, which, if you would like, you can call us at... 415-831-4134. If you're outside of the Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. And as always, you can call us on any question on tonight's topic. That's labor and employment law. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. A few years back, we did a show on marijuana before it was mostly legalized, not entirely, but mostly legalized. And one of the things that, amar- that amazed me at the time was a carryover of a case from the medical marijuana days where an employer was doing testing for marijuana use, not to see if someone was under the influence at the time of their employee, but to see what they're doing on their off time. And at that time, the case law allowed it, notwithstanding a medical marijuana card. Has that changed? 
Yes, Jeff, it has changed. <laughs> That's a great setup there, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> um, there uh, was legislation uh, that passed last year that will take effect next year. Uh, so 2024, uh, and employees and employers should both be aware. Uh, it is uh, AB 2188, and that legislation is going to make uh, recreational use of cannabis a protected category under the law, under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Uh, so, you know, we, we talked about um, that a little earlier, that if you are a protected category, you should be listed uh, in, in your employer's policies, and uh, you would be able to bring a discrimination claim uh, with the state or to file a lawsuit to claim discrimination uh, if an employer is uh, acting against you because you happen to use recreational cannabis. So, yeah, the world has changed in this regard. And California has done this notwithstanding the fact that under federal law, cannabis remains a controlled substance. So uh, you have this interesting distinction between state and federal. And uh, with regard to testing, uh, the issue that you raised specifically, Jeff, uh, there is uh, a basically a new uh, rule in town for uh, testing in that the testing needs to look for properties that would suggest someone is under the influence and not uh, other things that uh, might be in someone's system uh, long after uh, smoking cannabis, uh, using cannabis, uh, which uh, don't necessarily relate to being under the influence. Um, and uh, the science suggests that a lot of the testing has been looking for the wrong stuff. So whether employers have tests that look for the right stuff is going to be an issue under this new law. Is that across all industries? I would think that if I had an employee working at Home Depot, I'd be much more concerned about the employee running a forklift and maybe dealing with things stacked much higher than the than the customers walking down the aisles than I would be with the employee that's at the cash register. There are some exceptions. And, uh, for example, I work with a lot of uh, employers in the construction industry where it's very safety sensitive. There is a carve-out for the building and construction uh, industry so that uh, this is not going to uh, apply to them in the same way. And uh, also, if you are working in an environment uh, that is governed by federal background investigations uh, or security clearances, you're not going to be subject to this law in the same way. So uh, to the contractors out there who are wondering, do I need to allow employees on my job site? Um, who are under the influence, the answer is no. And frankly, to any employer, do you need to allow uh, employees in your workplace who are under the influence? And uh, the answer is generally going to be no. But in terms of, uh, in terms of protection for recreational use of cannabis, that is going to be something presumably off-duty uh, which is going to uh, then have the legal protection of the Fair Employment and Housing Act. Would the same hold true for such industries as trucking or 
operating trains? If if they are governed by federal standards, if there are you know, testing standards under federal law, then you know I would expect that uh, they would not be covered by uh, these rules. There would be a greater ability to regulate. Uh, You're just trying to think of the worst case scenario, aren't you, Jeff? I mean, I know it gets exciting, but no, laws have common sense. That was actually a text from a listener <laughs> who was commenting on just how far things have progressed in California and what a wonderful thing it is as long as it doesn't reach. And I didn't have time to finish his text, but I did notice he specifically asked about truck drivers and train operators. Mm. Harry, that one's for you. (laughs) Well, most train operators are governed by federal law. Um, So we won't touch the train operators. And um, most of the truck drivers who do interstate commerce also will be federal law. Um, so most of these health and safety requirements won't get excused. So unlike other areas where we're saying you're doing business in California, do it our way. This is one where perhaps we recognize that there's a federal interest in this and we will take a step back. Oh, I'm not that much of a constitutionalist. I was talking mostly about the health and safety element of uh, of the job as well as when they drive across state lines, the truckers and the train drivers. They Do we call them train drivers? What do we call them? Conductors. Conductors? They're very specialized titles. I don't want to disrespect the importance of what they do. They tend to fall under a different um, realm. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk a bit about minimum wage and things of that nature. But before we get there, one of the more interesting dynamics involved, that I've learned of in the last year or so involves fast food. Mm. And the mere idea that they would have a fast food council to determine wage, what's the status of that? Oh, no, that's your, your Tom. I talk and, so much. But I will say the Fast Food Council came out of the concept that you have so many people working in California, and this is really throughout most of the state, and you're working in an industry that is generating a decent income for the owners, and people are not able to live. Um, and the Fast Food Council was a, was a council that was going to study and then make recommendations. They didn't actually make any changes. The law does not actually say we are going to increase their wage any X amount. It is actually just a creation of a council to then make recommendations. So the the adverse reaction to it is kind of surprising, um, but I think they're anticipating changes. And then I hand it off to you, Tom. The uh, the fast food council is uh, the creation of uh, AB two five seven, which. Um, Actually, uh, my my legislator from my hometown, Chris Holden, um, uh, drafted, and it is uh, something that would create councils uh, or a council in the fast food industry to yeah review uh, the uh, the working conditions in the fast food industry and to set wages. And uh, the management community is concerned that uh, there would be, uh, I think. A, a change in, in the leverage and how the, the rules are created, who's making the rules, and whether this would be a platform for other uh, industries to, to have similar. So uh, that, that is a concern that uh, certainly I've heard about. But the, uh, the thrust of this is 
to uh, look at what's going on in the fast food industry and to create rules that would be uh, appropriate for that industry, for that workplace. And uh, other countries have certainly had uh, industry councils and uh, bodies to look at, perhaps take a more specialized look at at what goes on. So there's there's a lot yet to be, I think, defined uh, as to what this would be in practice. that being said, uh, the the controversy over um, this legislation and uh, it taking effect has led to a, a referendum, which is uh, going to be on the ballot. So it is not yet taking effect. We will uh, see where things go, but it'll be a while before we have um, any specific answers on this. And 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 to kind of loop it into what we were talking about earlier about AB5. AB5 was a big shift in how we look at things. And though the Fast Food Council hasn't actually proposed anything, which would be a shift, after AB5, we had um, legislative, we had um, other legislative action, legal challenges, because it was such a shift and and a shock to some people. Um, Whereas here we have, um, and then we had Prop 22 for the gig workers to try to carve out chunks. With the, legis- with the Fast Food Council, we're now immediately seeing a prop, just like we had Prop 22, to challenge what the legislation was. Um, and that was a pattern that was learned, um, that that's a way to accomplish what you want in response to legislation that is potentially going to create a shift. And by a prop, you mean that these very wealthy and powerful um, corporations would have people canvassing neighborhoods and getting signatures to put a proposition on the ballot, I which in California <laughs> would hold this change in abeyance until the voters have had a chance to speak. Every process is written into the Constitution that everyone has an opportunity to engage in the legislative process, and propositions are part of the legislative process. Um, uh, yeah. There's there's arguments to be made. They are swayed by corporations, individuals, donors, but everybody has a vote. And so that's why it's important that you register, you educate yourself, and you pay attention to the information out there um, when a proposition's on the ballot. And also your people are running for office. Everyone should run for office. Everyone should get educated. Everyone should participate in the process. And that wasn't meant to sound like a socialist rant. But the reality <laughs> of these big corporations isn't that – they're flexing muscles that the rest of us don't have. It's simply that they're in so many different locations that if they send out a message to all of their franchise holders, it's a statewide message as opposed to a local establishment that may have two locations. They may get people out in the neighborhood, but they're not going to create statewide change or oppose it. I, I think it's always important when you have a proposition uh, or you know, any sort of proposal uh, for for changing or adding to the rules. Who is putting it forth? What are their goals? Uh, what is that proposition seeking to achieve? Uh, and whichever side of the fence you happen to be on with a particular issue, that's a relevant thing to consider. And as Beth uh, very appropriately mentioned, we all have a vote. And I, I think where you uh, fall on it, whether it's this issue or something else, you should absolutely register, get out there, and express yourself because uh, it, it's about the will of the people uh, when it comes to a proposition or you know, generally referendums, candidates, whatever it is. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. 
You still have another couple minutes if you wish to call in. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. Any question about labor and employment is fair game. You don't have to jump in on our conversation. You still have a couple minutes if you want to call in. The talk about a fast food council theoretically could result in an industry that has forever been arguably underpaid suddenly have a higher minimum wage than everyone else. Let's talk a little bit about minimum wage rules. What's changed in the area of minimum wages? Um, I mean, everything is a theory that we're talking about. I would be surprised if the the council suggested a minimum wage that that tiered higher than the statewide minimum wage. Um, But again, it's become very expensive to live in California and the projections of the statewide minimum wage was made before um, we really truly knew what was going on. Um, Right now, the statewide minimum wage effective January 1st, 2023 is $15.50 an hour, so $15.50. But everyone should pay attention very carefully to their own city and county in which they live. Um, One of the beautiful things about California is that some of our local legislators who are sometimes just as powerful, if not more powerful than our state and our federal legislators, will put on their local um, uh, ballots and initiatives and legislation to affect your life. And that includes minimum wage. So cities and counties will have higher minimum wage requirements. So please make sure that if you are working for an employer in Oakland, Berkeley, San Jose, you know, um, South San Francisco, that you are checking to see if you're receiving the minimum wage that applies to where you are working because it is not going to be the same as the statewide minimum wage. And you should also look to see if there's any other individual laws that have been passed for employment matters in your area. San Francisco is a beautiful place that starts employment laws there often that are not else in the state or the country. So it's not just minimum wage, but San Francisco has some really good flowers that we bloom here first. And I made them all smile, just letting you know with that comment. And I I would add also there there are industry-specific rules, uh, such as prevailing wage and construction. So uh, that will certainly uh, set rates for for public work higher than what uh, you would find uh, for the minimum wage. Uh, th- this is uh, you know, an, an issue that I, I think all employers need to pay close attention to. And if you have operations that uh, maybe are based in a place where the state minimum wage is uh, the norm, but you go into San Francisco or you uh, go into another city or county that has these higher rates, you need to make sure that you are in compliance because you are chancing it. And the repercussions for getting wage and hour law wrong uh, are significant. And uh, I I like to remind employers that uh, if you don't have good records, uh, what the employee believes happened is presumed correct. It's a good rule, right? Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends on who you ask, but (laughs) (laughs) it's it's an important rule. And it's one that makes having good records uh, important to ensure that you can, you know, basically reconstruct the work week and uh, how many hours were worked in a day and so forth so that you can prove the proper rate was paid. 
Right. And why minimum wage is so important isn't just because you live off of it, right? We we all know it's important to pay your bills, but your overtime and your double time, if eligible for it and relevant to your schedule, is based off of your minimum wage. So we want to make sure you're getting the correct hourly wage that you do. Um, we all know that this is important to how we, we survive day to day, many of us. So it's important that you're getting what you're due. If you have concerns, you can look it up, but you can also ask your employer. Um, and then, as Tom pointed out, there are penalties for not paying the minimum wage correctly and on time. You can go to the state um, labor commissioner, and there's a wonderful calendar where you can fill in your time if you haven't been tracking it to estimate what you think you might have been owed and what the penalties might be. Um, and it's just really smart to keep track of those things for yourself. Um, I know as a plaintiff employment attorney for over 20 years, I sometimes don't keep my pay stubs. Please keep your records. Um, don't make the same mistakes I did when I was a younger attorney. It is just smart for yourself to have those things. One of the other areas that we talk about, we talked a little bit about reproductive rights. So we have women in the workplace that have young children to feed. What changes have there been in that arena? What about room uh, having an area set aside for to accommodate them if they need to breastfeed or the like? Um, so technically in California, it's not truly a change. San Francisco, again, as I talked about being the blossoming flower of great employment laws, um, the the breastfeeding rights and laws in California, in San Francisco, excuse me, passed here, um, signed by um, then Mayor Ed Lee in 2017. Um, and it was one of the first in the state. It was one of the most encompassing. And then it became law in uh, 2019 or signed in 2019, effective 2020 signed by uh, Governor Newsom. Those foundations, those building blocks, have been mimicked now in almost all the states that have set into place their breastfeeding and pumping rights um, laws in the workplace. And then Federal Pump Act was finally passed this year. Um, and it was, I think they did, they tried eight separate times um, under different names with different um, augmentations. And they really, I believe, from looking at the, the San Francisco law and the California law, used our beautiful footsteps, our flowers, and used that um, to come up with the Federal Pump Act. Why is that important? Because look at our laws. Pay attention to what we have here and be proud of it. Um, but also, if you work for an employer that you're relocating to another state or you're temporarily in another state, um, your Federal Pump Act may be the first time they have ever had any breast pumping, breastfeeding rights in the workplace. There are some states that this is just foreign language to them, and they need, and you need to know what your rights are. So you're going to want to look to the federal breastfeeding rights under the Federal Pump Act. As we're running low on time, there's one last area I did want to touch on briefly. Used to be that it was pretty easy for an employer to say, if I bring you on, you can't ever go to work for somebody else. You can't disclose anything. Seems like that may be changing. What is the current status of non-competition or non-disclosure clauses? In California, non-competes have been against the law for a long time. There's a patchwork of um, laws across the country. Different states feel differently on these issues. Um, Non-disclosure is more of a developing issue, but California has been aggressive in uh, trying to protect employees' rights to communicate. 
and to uh, preserve um, you know, rights to you know bring action uh, to talk about you know problems in the workplace and, and so forth so um, we're, we're seeing now uh, under under federal law that um, both the Federal Trade Commission and National Labor Relations Board are taking steps to deal with uh, non-competes. Uh, I, I think perhaps to emulate what California has done. Um, and uh, there was just a ruling yesterday from the National Labor Relations Board on non-disclosure, uh, a case called McComb. And uh, in, in that one, the, the Labor Board uh, reversed um, some Trump-era precedent uh, that had changed longstanding law on employees' rights to communicate about wages, hours, and working conditions even after they have left an employer via severance agreement. Yeah, and we could do a whole show on non-compete agreements. We could do a whole show on non-disclosure clauses, especially with recent laws in California. But I just want to remind employees, non-compete um, clauses should not be in your employment documents, your separation and your non-hire um, if they are, there should be very specific limited reasons. And so please talk to an attorney. That is an unfortunate piece of language that has been showing up when it shouldn't. And everyone should have a right to work. Everyone should have a right to make a living. Everyone should have a right to pay their bills. So if you see that language, ask for help. We and, and for employers, I would say definitely get advice before you send out agreements like that. If you're using something you pulled off the Internet or that came from a lawyer out of state, uh, you better talk to someone local. We have about 30 seconds each if you want to have any closing remarks. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about these new laws. California is always uh, very active uh, with uh, the legislation that comes out affecting the workplace, and it is annually a reminder to employers Review your policies, update them, and make sure that your practices are not only legally compliant but consistent with the message you send in your policies. Beth, about 30 seconds or less. Yes, thank you for having me. I want to take a moment to thank the California Employment Lawyers Association as an organization I work with where we helped work on editing, drafting, and writing nearly every law we talked about tonight. And in every year, we work to help improve the lives of employees. We work alongside with other advocates and organizations such as Equal Rights Advocates and Legal Aid at Work in the Stronger California platform with amazing legislators. So when I say we really care, we do, but we also care about you voting, paying attention, and running for office because without everyone participating in the process, we can't make these important laws that help change the lives for employees everywhere. So thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. Tonight we've been discussing what's changed in labor and employment law and your rights in the workplace. Our guests tonight have been Beth Mora of Mora Employment Law and Tom Lenz at Atkinson Andelson Lawyer Rude Romo in Pasadena. Tonight's show was produced by yours truly. Please join your legal rights again next week, Wednesday at 6 p.m., where, as always, we will take your calls and answer your questions. For your legal rights, big thanks to tonight's guests and to the Labor and Employment Law section of the California Lawyers Association. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. And at the controls, Joanne Marr. I'm Jeff Hayden. Good night and be safe.
Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Thank you. 